Trying to find safe and affordable housing in a housing crisis is already stressful and even traumatic. But for women and children fleeing violence and abuse, the trauma is compounded. They have to make the difficult choice, often at a moment's notice, to flee for their safety without the benefit of a plan for what's next. Where to go, where to live, and what happens if there's nowhere to flee to? The decision between suffering abuse and experiencing homelessness is a terrible non-choice. It's a dark mental calculus no one should have to perform. How do we ensure that there's housing available for people fleeing gender-based violence? How do we ensure that housing is supportive and designed to ease a difficult transitional period? Are we listening to survivors about the kind of housing they need to restart their lives and care for their children? This is The Overhead, understanding Canada's affordable housing crisis. In this special series, we examine approaches to reimagining the urban housing landscape in Canada to ensure everyone has access to a decent, affordable roof over their head. I'm Glenn Bowerman. Let's get into it. Tannis Knowles is Director of Programs at the BC Society of Transition Houses. The Society is a member-based organization that provides resources to enhance services for women, children, and youth experiencing violence. She tells us about the connection between women fleeing violence and homelessness, and how a multi-staged approach to providing housing can help transition people from abusive situations to a new life. So, Tannis, I was hoping to begin by asking you to tell us a bit about the BC Society of Transition Housing. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, the BC Society of Transition Houses is based in Vancouver, but we're a provincial-level organization. We're a membership organization that provides education, training, support, and resources to transition houses, second-stage, third-stage housing, safe homes, uh, now long-term housing providers, and the Prevention, Education, Advocacy, and Counseling and Empowerment Program, which is known as the Peace Program for Children and Youth Who've Experienced Violence. And I want to get into those stages that you mentioned, but first, uh, just to paint a picture uh, for, for what you're dealing with uh, for the audience, what is the connection between women experiencing violence and homelessness in, in Canadian cities and, and even uh, you know smaller towns? Yeah, so the key issue faced by many is the severe lack of affordable and appropriate housing in BC for women and their children who have experienced violence. And this is a case, the case across Canada. Our work is primarily focused on BC, but we know that, that affordability is a real growing issue across Canada and has been in BC for a long time. So women who come into temporary emergency services after leaving a violent home often can't move on to permanent housing because of this lack of affordable housing. And this has created a bottleneck in services as more and more women and children are being denied access to services uh, when they're seeking to leave a violent situation. And so to address that, I, I was hoping you could explain a little bit about 
what women-centered housing specifically might might look like, uh, or, or you know, caregiver-centered housing, that kind of thing. And often the, the groups are the same, one and the same. Yeah, so the foundation of women-centered housing is intersectional feminism. So by using an intersectional approach to understanding housing, we can see that not all women have equal access to housing or face the same barriers. While there are limited services specific to women, there are even more limitations when women have additional needs, such as accessibility or sub needing support in substance use and things like that. So with intersectional feminism comes a continual process of reflexivity or trying to see what we might be missing or misunderstanding so that we can effectively meet those barriers or, or address those barriers that some women may be facing. So this is foundational to women-centered housing because with more knowledge, we can adapt services and ensure housing is accessible to a broader range of needs. But also women-centered practices and women-centered housing recognize that women are the experts of their own lives and empower women to make the best decisions for themselves and their family. So it, it means for us that in order to ensure women-centered practices are core to long-term housing provision, we have to be mindful of some of the top-down processes that are common in housing and do our best to implement more women-centered alternatives right from the beginning. So part of our work is around women-centered design and understanding how to design the housing, both the building and the units in the housing to meet the needs of women, and then also the services that we provide in that housing and how we operate the housing. And so when we integrate women-centered housing, the private market rents. So it puts women in a really precarious situation as to how to move forward in their lives after violence. The creation of home and the act of homemaking is essential to the women-centered model and really a radical, radic can be a radical act. Although access to safe space for women and their children who've experienced violence may mean that homemaking is fraught, we need to understand how we can make that a collaborative process between the housing provider, the, the resident, and the entire community. It occurs to me that maybe this is becoming a more visible issue because back in the day, you know, unfortunately, women often just didn't or couldn't leave uh, if they were experiencing violence or, you know, especially if, if they had children to, to look after and protect. Now, it's good that people feel empowered. They can leave an abusive situation, but they're, they're leaving at a time where most cities have just a, a housing crisis, a shortage of supply, sky-high rents. And so I, I guess what you're trying to <laughs> address is it's, it's good to be able to leave, but you have to be able to leave to something. Absolutely. So we are very lucky in British Columbia to have a robust transition house sector that provides emergency and temporary services for women fleeing violence in safe homes and transition houses across the province. Um, and many of our members have moved into the model of second stage housing where women can stay, women and their children can stay for approximately 18 months, depending on the program. But then eventually they, these women accessing these services do want and need to move on to their to permanent housing and that's really where we see the bottleneck is that there's so few affordable suitable housing units available for women and their children um, and we see that primarily with women with larger families or multiple children the wait list for social housing is so long community housing can be very long and the private rental market with the rents increasing so fast it's really hard for women to be able to afford 
the private market rents. So it puts women in a really precarious situation as to how to move forward in their lives after violence. You mentioned developing strategies based on what you hear from actual survivors. What kind of things do you hear from from people who are fleeing violence, looking for for housing? What kind of things do they say that they they need uh, in the immediate future and, and long term? Yeah, so at the BC Society of Transition Houses is an umbrella organization for the organizations that do that frontline work, the transition house or and anti-violence organizations that do that work. And so we primarily hear from our members about the frontline work that they're doing. On occasion, we have run focus groups with women uh, with lived experience of violence to get a sense of their own experiences directly. And we did that through the Getting Home Project, which was a project we ran for the last several years, as well as the Women-Centered Design Toolkit Project, where we looked at women's with lived experience of violence and their feedback that they could give us about what design mechanisms and measures should be taken in terms of the housing that's developed for their needs. And so in those focus groups, we heard from women about the severe stress that they're under in terms of accessing affordable housing and their painful position that they're put in to to try and decide between two different human rights, the human right to safety and the human right to housing. And often, even if they've left a violent situation, they may end up in a a housing situation that is still not safe. Even if it's not their original abuser, it may be a, a landlord or a neighborhood or a another arrangement that is still not safe for them. So having to really compromise on on elements of their life that that really they should be entitled to those human rights. So we heard a lot about about that in terms of they're caught in this very difficult decision about how to uh, get a roof over their head. You mentioned that you you have a supportive provincial government there, you know, building housing uh, in the different tiers that as as are needed. What are the barriers to to the kind of work that you're doing? Yeah, so as I mentioned, BC Housing has committed uh, to building 1,500 units of new uh, second stage long term and transition housing across the province, and we hope to hear about funding for additional uh, units very soon. Um, so we do have great support from BC Housing in our sector to address some of these issues. But when we look at the barriers to to these issues, we see that there's real needs for capacity across the sector. There's more work than there are people to do it, that's for sure. And so that is a constant barrier um, and challenge for our members as they embark on building and designing housing. There's also limitations and regulations and, and elements of the building process that make it hard for our members to implement some of the best practices or design elements that that we hear from women or that that were that came out of our research on women-centered housing and women-centered housing design due to the cost or the availability um, we know that the process for building housing these days there are significant delays and costs are going up and so it, there's a lot of moving parts that our members have to deal with when it comes to building uh, second stage or long-term housing to meet these needs to, to put a fine point on it, when someone is actually able to find stable housing after fleeing violence, and especially if they have children to, to take care of, what can that stable housing mean for you know change of, 
uh, of life and uh, of, of success and you know being able to thrive. Yes. Well, like I've said, we've heard from our members that housing is foundational to being able to move forward and feel safe and secure in terms of women's next chapter in their life. We don't collect longitudinal studies on of the women who use the services in our membership. Um, so I, I don't have any specific data on that, but I do hear from our members working on the front line about the relief and the security that comes from having an affordable housing unit. Um, and also the fear that a lot of women have if they are in the private rental market that although they may have an affordable unit for now, that may change depending on their family size or rent evictions or all of these things that we know are happening that still make affordable housing precarious if someone isn't in a co-op or, or a community housing or social housing provided unit. Finally, I was hoping you could point us to uh, some some of the resources that you've developed with the society for various government levels, or uh, if there are other uh, organizations across Canada that would you know copy your work. Yes, thank you. So I want to highlight the work of my colleague Ghazli Arkbanajad, who developed the Women Centered Housing Design Toolkit. This explores housing design specifically for women with experiences of violence and demonstrates the opportunities in design of housing to enhance the suitability of living spaces for women and their dependents, taking an intersectional lens to the housing space design needs of women. Um, and it includes experiences of violence, trauma, gender, single parenting, family, size and composition, lifestyle, age and needs of children, with the idea that we can design spaces to be flexible and responsive as women and their children's design needs change over time. So that's a toolkit that's available on our website. It's called the Women-Centered Housing Design Toolkit. And it's been developed based on our membership and the experiences that we've heard across the sector, but is relevant to housing designers and architects and, and other housing professionals if they're interested in housing design for women. And I know that there are some architects in Vancouver that have already used it to help inform their designs. The next uh, resource that I want to mention is the Women-Centered Housing Development Toolkit, which has come out of the Keys to Home project and has been developed by my colleague Kayla Ashley. And so it provides an understanding of the development process, demystifying, I should say, of the development process so that organizations in our sector can have a better understanding of the stages of the housing development process, everything from financing to engaging with your community and combating nimbyism, all the way to uh, housing operations and what you need to do to open those doors. So that's a quite a long toolkit, but it covers you know, all of those different elements. And it's based on the work of BC Nonprofit Housing Association, who shared lots of resources with us so that we could develop it with a women-centered lens. And finally, I want to talk about some of the research that we've done. Throughout the various projects that we've worked on, we have completed a community needs assessment, as well as piloted some projects and conducted academic research academic research has been in partnership with Dr. Alina McKay and Victoria Barclay, who I believe you'll be talking with later on this program. And so, you know, throughout the research, we try and really highlight the key issues that we're seeing through quantitative analysis and 
qualitative analysis with our members through surveys so that these issues are captured in a way that can impact policy and decision-making for those in the position of power to do so. All right. Well, Tennis, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you so much for having me. And you can learn more about the BC Society of Transition Houses at www.bcsth.ca. Now, when providing housing for women fleeing violence, it's important to have standards. You would want that housing to be safe, affordable, meet certain needs, especially for those caring for children. But to set appropriate standards, you have to understand the people you're trying to help. You have to listen to and appreciate their needs. Otherwise, despite best intentions, you may just create new barriers of a different kind. One of these barriers exists within the National Occupancy Standards. To explain how, here's Alina McKay, Research Coordinator with the Housing Research Collaborative, and Victoria Barclay, a grad student at the University of British Columbia Department of Sociology. I want to begin by asking uh, the two of you to introduce yourself, tell us who you're with, and uh, the basis of your research. I'm Victoria. I recently completed my Master of Arts in Sociology from UBC. Uh, my research was about housing for women who were fleeing violence in Vancouver and Toronto, and I supported the Finding Rooms for Family project, which is very similar and aligns well. And now I'm a project coordinator at a nonprofit in Vancouver called Women Transforming Cities, and we do a lot of urban stuff that is around intersectional feminism and how to increase equity in the city of Vancouver for women in equity-deserving genders. And I'm Alina McKay. I'm the research manager for the Balanced Supply of Housing and the Housing Research Collaborative at the University of British Columbia. And I also was working on this, uh, the Finding Rooms for Families project with Victoria and our partner, which is um, BC Society of Transition Houses. So I actually started working on this project prior to my work with the Balanced Supply of Housing. And I had finished my doctorate in BC Society of Transition Houses was looking for a researcher to do some work on national occupancy standards. My focus has always been on housing, so this was a really good fit and have learned so much through this project, so it's been really good. I wanted to begin by asking you to explain to listeners what the national occupancy standard uh, actually is, because I know that's a, a key part of what you've been working on. National occupancy standards are a set of guidelines that Canadian Housing and Mortgage Corporation uses as part of their um, measure of core housing needs. So when, you know, CMHC publishes data around core housing needs, it's really looking at households that like, in a lot of ways could re require non-market housing solutions or um, more affordable options of housing, um, just because of two factors. Well, the main factor being income. So core housing needs, they really start out by figuring out like what the median rent is within a specific area. And then from there, they identify households that really can't meet certain level of affordability based on average rents or median rents in that area. So they've identified households that are living in unaffordable housing. So more than 30% of their income is going towards housing costs. The second piece is inadequate housing. So that second piece of core housing needs is um, adequate, inadequate housing, which would be identified as housing in need of major repair. So maybe the roof is leaking or there's like windows that are broken or something like that. Like that would be a major repair that's needed. And um, if that household can't move to affordable housing in the, same, in the area that they need to live in, 
they would be considered in core housing needs that is like, yeah, if they can't move somewhere that's in good repair. The third piece is the suitability measure, which is where national occupancy standards come in. And it's a really around like, does the household have enough bedrooms given their size and composition? So this is a really odd sort of throwback to the 1980s and these very strong ideas about a nuclear family and how many rooms everyone needed. And ultimately they say that people can share a bedroom if they're the same gender and under the age of 18 or they're a couple. In any other cases, there's like this consideration that, okay, it's like inappropriate for people to share a bedroom. So for example, a single parent with two children that are like one's five and a young girl and one's eight and a young boy. And then like, we, we, well, let's not even get started when we start thinking about, you know, like gender identity and, and like the sort of how that complicates these like, very strong ideas of like gender um, that are built into this policy. So that family would need three veterans given national occupancy standards because children under the age of five are allowed under this policy, under these guidelines to share a bedroom, but over the age of five aren't. So it very quickly starts to impact families, um, especially lone parent families, when they're in desperate need of social affordable housing. And social affordable housing is using these standards to actually allocate housing because there just isn't a lot of three and four and five bedroom units. And very quickly, families are sort of pushed into under these standards and needing um, multiple bedrooms for their household. So it pushes them into market housing, further unaffordability, long wait lists, the sort of list goes on in terms of how this impacts specifically lone parent households, racialized households, house, women fleeing violence specifically are really impacted by this and uh, urban settings too, where uh, we see like the concentration of poor housing. How does this uh, national standard intersect with any provincial or, or uh, municipal guidelines there may be? So Toronto is a bit of an outlier because they have, the city of Toronto has their own occupancy standards that they actually use to allocate social affordable housing. But in a lot of other jurisdictions, they don't actually have clear guidelines. So that often leads municipalities to fall back on national occupancy standards when they are actually allocating housing because they look at Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, which is sort of considered like the go-to when you're looking at well, what does the government say is appropriate given family size and composition? Okay, these national occupancy standards exist, so let's use them given the lack of like other guidelines out there. For example, in British Columbia, up until very recently, BC Housing was using national occupancy standards to allocate housing, social affordable housing. And it was only in 2019 that they sort of sent a very like vague letter to housing providers saying, you don't have to use national occupancy standards, but actually didn't actually give an alternative as, as what should be used in its place. So you mentioned the effect that this has on women and uh, children fleeing violence in particular. Can you explain just kind of in detail how this standard uh, affects people looking for uh, housing who, you know, I'm, I'm going to imagine in a lot of cases need to take whatever they can get, at least in the, in the uh, immediate term? Yeah, so because of the national occupancy standards, women who are fleeing violence with children are often actually denied housing because their family does not fit what that unit looks like. So if they need, according to their 
gender and the age of their children, if they need four bedrooms, but only two bedrooms are available, then they're denied housing. Often that can mean that they end up homeless, they're in a transition home, they're staying with their abuser. And so it has really detrimental outcomes for these women. And just to add on to what Elena was saying earlier, I think that what I find really interesting about core housing need and suitability is that there's such a difference when we think about the different elements of housing and how we conceptualize them and how we put them into practice. Because when we talk about like financial aspects of housing, for example, it's a bit more understood that affordability looks different for different people. So we say, you know, 30% of your income, your household income is being spent on housing or less, then that's great. It's affordable for you because we have that percentage to acknowledge that people are in different affordable, different income situations. But then when we talk about suitability, all of a sudden it's this supposed to be one size fits all when that's not nearly the case because people can make their own choices. They have their own families. They have different values. They have different needs. And so they don't really need housing providers or policymakers to tell them who should be sleeping in which bedroom. Yeah. I'll also add that like anyone that doesn't need social affordable housing isn't being held to these standards. So if you're, you know, a middle-class family that, well, I can give the example of my own family, right? Like I, my family, um, I have three kids. We were living in a two bedroom unit. I had my young daughter sleeping in the room with us and my two other children sleeping in another room, like under national occupancy standards, we would not have been suitably housed, but because we were not within like the social affordable housing, we could totally do that. And and like, there wasn't any consequences for our family or, you know, lots of families room share or bed share that there's no consequences for them. But when we think about lower income families that are actually being expected to live up to these standards that like no one else is expected to national occupancy standards really like are very prescriptive. Yeah. That's the concern with them. And just for context for listeners, you know, roughly, what are the demographics of women and children fleeing violence? Like how prevalent of a problem is this in Canada? Um, well, some of the quantitative work that Alina has done for the Findings for Family study is around um, using logistic regression to see the demographics of who is more likely to be unsuitably housed. And we found that women-led households are 2.5 times more likely to be unsuitably housed and people who identify as non-white are more likely to be unsuitably housed as well as as your household size increases, you're more likely to be unsuitably housed. So the more children that you have, you're more likely to either be unsuitably housed or just be denied housing altogether. So it sounds like the, the more that you might need it, uh, the harder it is to, to actually get it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I, I don't actually have, like, unfortunately, my data is not available right now, but um, I do have some, like, 2021 census data that just gives like a general picture of, for example, 24.3% of lone parent households in Canada are in core housing need, and that's about 373,000 households. So sometimes people point to this as like, oh, well, it's not actually impacting that many people. Um, But like Victoria said, when we actually dig down and say like, okay, well, what like single parent households are disproportionately impacted, racialized households are disproportionately impacted, urban households, and then all of a sudden you have a, a core group of people that are really not being served by social affordable housing in any meaningful way and are facing massive unaffordability in urban centers and just major housing pressures. Is this a case of 
letting perfect get in the way of good, as, as we see in a lot of sort of planning dictates. It makes me think also of the conversation around boarding houses or multi-unit uh, dwellings where people say, well, these aren't up to standard. They could be dangerous. Meanwhile, you have people saying, but we, we have nowhere else to go and we need housing now, uh, especially if you are fleeing violence and you, you have children to take care of. Are we getting in our own way? I definitely would say yes, as we as we probably do with most policy problems in Canada, because there, when we talk about the national occupancy standards, of course, people want alternatives because they don't want people to be overcrowded. But while we're coming up with those alternatives and finding better ways to serve women who are fleeing violence, there are still women who are not able to flee violence because they don't have access to housing or because if they try to access housing, they, they're homeless instead. And so they're making this choice between either staying with their abuser, being homeless, and those are the options because they're just not getting access to the housing that they need. Yeah, I'll add that in our qualitative research, that was one of the key things. And just in terms of the general research on women being violence in Canada, there is a really strong evidence that the longer a woman stays in a violent home, the harder it is to leave. And in the qualitative research, we also found that some, in some cases, there was a lot of like fear and stigma about going into transition housing. And so families would apply to go into social affordable housing, where there's often five to 10 year wait lists, but then they would only move out of that relationship or that home if they were provided with social affordable housing. So if you're thinking about that household where you have someone that is in many ways trapped in a really terrible situation and said, oh, just wait five to 10 years and we might be able to help you out. You can just see how it, it can be really detrimental and really um, severely impact this group specifically. So the two of you have been looking at a sort of land use slash planning solution uh, to, to this problem. Can, can you kind of explain what that is? I think often, you know, when we think about national occupancy standards, even when we think about like land use planning. It's often around like, you know, is this property zoned for a single family home or is it multi-unit? And then it sort of stops there and there's no real consideration that's taken into like, well, you know, if it is multi-unit, what do those units look like? Often we're when we're planning cities, it can seem like the precedent is given to sort of like couples and yeah, higher income couples or like single people. Um, so there's a lot of like bachelor and two bedrooms that might be planned for um, without actually planning for three or four bedroom units that might serve families better. So one of the big factors that we found in this is just that when families actually go and or households actually go looking for housing um, in the market, there just isn't housing that exists that would be suitable even if it's like the family's own de definition of suitable that they're using, because there's just a lack of larger units in urban spaces. So one of the things that this work is also doing, and, and I, I should actually note as well, that originally when the you know suitability standards were introduced in the late 1980s and early 1990s, there was this idea, and it was also during a time of like major austerity and housing and um, downloading housing responsibility to the provinces. Um, there is this idea that that the you know CMHC and federal level government would give provinces this information about housing suitability and say like, look, you have 37,000 households that are unsuitably housed and actually need three bedrooms instead of two bedrooms. Now you as a province, you go and identify like how to actually 
provide an additional 37,000 units of three-bedroom units. But that never like actually happened. So we have 30 years where there's been no like you know municipalities haven't been planning for the households that are in need within their communities. And then you know we have this problem where there's like this backlog in families needing social affordable housing, and there's this backlog in transition houses, and there's this backlog in families like needing to leave violent circumstances. So like yeah, that that planning never happened, and so really this is pushing a saying like okay we you know for 30 years we haven't been doing this land use planning where we've been ignoring the fact that there's like multiple families that actually need three or four or five bedroom units so a we should start to do that type of planning and then b given the limited resources that we actually have the limited social affordable housing units how do we actually allocate that, those like how do we actually do a better job of making sure that households do get the housing that they need and giving households like a little bit more, I guess, like a chance to say like, Hey, you know what, if I can live in social affordable housing and it's a one bedroom that works for my family. Like it's not up to that, like the housing provider to decide that like, Oh, sorry, you're a family of three. You can't live in that. So you'll have to go to the market and like pay 80% of, in some cases we had families that we talked to that were paying like 80 or hundred percent of their income to their rental costs. Like that's not a decision that we should be forcing any household to make. So um, allowing households to say like, okay, this is like what works for me given the limited resources and then be planning for urban spaces that have more family centered housing and uh, women centered housing is also that second. Yeah. The only thing that I'll add there. Um, is something that I touched on in my thesis work, which is about making sure that those multi-bedroom units are available across the city for several reasons. So one of the reasons that I was describing my research is about that aspect of community. So if people have dentists and doctors and schools and counselors that are in a certain area, they shouldn't be forced to leave that if they don't want to. So being able to access housing in the areas of the cities that they want. But then also another huge reason for that is the safety aspect, because if you have all of the multi-bedroom units for women who are fleeing violence in one area of the city, then any abuser can easily, okay, there you are. I know exactly where you are. I can locate you. I can find you. And I now I know where you are. And that's not safe for those women. So also being able to choose where to go when, if, they, if that makes them feel safer is really important. Right. And you, you talk about how we've sort of inherited this national occupancy standard from the 80s and 90s. In the last 10 or so years, I've noticed that governments have started talking about things uh, in terms of lenses, you know, like uh, an accessibility lens, uh, a gendered lens. Is this something that uh, even when these things are well-meaning, without that lens, you're not asking the right questions? Is this something that, uh, you know, looking at the issue with a women-centered or women and children or family-centered lens could improve? Absolutely. And I think that's exactly where this research came from, right? Like, it was BC Society of Transition Houses that went out to their members in British Columbia and said, like, what are the issues that you're facing? And housing came at back as like the number one or one of the number one issues. But a big piece of that was national occupancy standards. And at the time, BC Society of Transition Houses had, was like, wait a second, what are national occupancy standards and what do they have to do with housing? So, you know, that's where Victoria and my work really came in. And um, also the work of Kayla Ashley and Gazelle so, you know, it's it's saying like members were really saying this is a problem for us on the ground. 
I wanted to finish up with just, is there pushback against changing this? Because it seems almost, if not arbitrary, at least outdated. When you approach people and say that, hey, this this isn't working for many, many families, uh, especially women and children fleeing violence, is there anyone trying to toe the old line or, or is progress being made on this front? I think they are making progress. So, for example, BC Housing in the British Columbia context where we're working has held a couple of meetings to really talk about, like, how can we change national occupancy standards? And that really speaks to alternatives that are out there. City of Toronto, like I mentioned, does have a set of occupancy standards that we have looked to as an example of like how to relax occupancy standards. And there isn't this focus on gender in those occupancy standards. But I think that in our work with the BC Society of Transition Houses, we can go further. So the sort of three things that, you know, we're recommending in this work, and I'm really leaning on the work of BC Society of Transition Houses as well here, is really around identifying priority populations. So we've already talked a little bit about that, but, you know, racialized women, women with more like larger families and urban and like people living in urban centers are all really disproportionately impacted by occupancy standards. So there needs to be some sort of prioritization that takes place when identifying like who actually gets priority to that three bedroom unit when it becomes available. And then the second is um, a self-assessment. So giving families the chance to say a two-bedroom works for me or it really doesn't work for me so in our qualitative work as well we did have some families that were living in social affordable housing where it really didn't work so for example one family we talked to had two children that had been in the foster care system they were both teenage boys sharing a room for them did not work (laughs) like they these were two kids that did not get along and and they needed separate spaces and they needed space of their own. And so they were you know, living with a extended family. So that person slept on the couch and the two boys had their own rooms. Um, so in some cases, people do need more space and families need to have a place to say, like, this is what's going to work for my family. But in other cases, we talked to families that were desperately would have been very happy with a two bedroom unit. And we're told, wait, you have to wait for a three or four bedroom unit. So that self-assessment part is the second piece. And then the third piece is really like those community connections, really finding we know that there's not enough social affordable housing and non-market housing out there to meet the need. So it is also about working with landlords and making sure that there are spaces available that prioritize families and prioritize specifically in this context women and violence. Victoria, thoughts on the way forward? Yeah, I mean, I think that last point that Alina made is really important because the majority of housing in Canada is non-market. And of course, we'd love to see more social affordable housing become available. But the reality is that that's not going to happen in the next few years. So we do need to find ways to work with um, landlords and private building managers. And there have been stories that I've heard from women. One of the women in my study talked about how she was really supported by her building manager because when she was dealing with her ex-husband who was abusive, she was able to contact her building manager after a few months of feeling unsafe and finally saying, okay, I'm going to contact this person for help. And they did help her. They changed her locks. They told the security guard not to let anyone up to the unit without permission. And so like, there are aspects that can happen where we're working with different stakeholders in the housing sector. So um, yeah, I think the way forward is just multiple solutions at the same time. There isn't just one way forward. And just to 
on the previous question about um, using a gendered lens. I think those lens, like a gendered lens, an intersectional lens, and those things are so important because those issues that arise, they're only arising because we're using those lens. Because prior to the BCSTH's work, like maybe people didn't know that occupancy standards were impacting women this way because they weren't using that gendered lens. So that part is also really important for research. Well, Victoria, Alina, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you. It's always difficult to uproot your life and make a new start, even when doing so is a matter of survival for you and the people you care for. So we need to have options to make that transition possible and painless. For people who have experienced a great amount of trauma, the last thing we want to do as a community is compound that trauma. This means listening to women and children who have or are experiencing violence to understand their needs and allow them to choose what their life will be moving forward. Thank you for listening to The Overhead. This podcast is a co-production of Spacing Radio and the balanced supply of Housing Node. The Node is bridging gaps between research evidence and housing outcomes so everyone in Canada is able to access adequate housing and shelter in our neighbourhoods and communities. The Balanced Supply of Housing Node is part of the Collaborative Housing Research Network, a joint initiative between the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. This podcast was produced by myself, Glenn Bowerman, and Neil Hinchley. Original music composed by Neil Hinchley. Thank you to Tara Fernando for production assistance. This is the end of Season 2 of The Overhead. If you like this season, please share it around widely.